From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For decades, it didn't get done. We're talking nine presidential administrations. Where, where this hasn't happened. Oh yeah, 23 Congresses, this has not happened. So we should pause and celebrate this. I mean, this is huge. Now that the Great American Outdoors Act is law, what it means for open space in Colorado's mountains and its cities. Then, 75 years ago this week, the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Japan. We hear from a Hiroshima survivor. At that point, a black rain started to pour down. It began to put out some of the fires, but it stained our clothes and made us worried that we would get radiation from it. And later, an ER doc comes to terms with human fragility, including his own. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An administration that has rolled back many environmental regulations just signed a significant public lands bill into law. President Trump put his signature Tuesday on the Great American Outdoors Act. Key to its passage was Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner, who is seeking re-election. This bill will create 100,000 jobs, uh, several thousand in my home state of Colorado. It will protect the Forest Service, our Fish and Wildlife uh, Service, our wildlife refuges, our BLM grounds. This will work on our national parks. This will stop Congress from stealing the money that they have for decades and put it back into the national parks for generations to come. The law will permanently fill the coffers of the Land and Water Conservation Fund and sends billions to address the maintenance backlog at national parks. So what can you expect to see change here? From the base of Mount Columbia is Ben Hannes of the Colorado 14ers Initiative. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ryan. Chris Castilian is with Great Outdoors Colorado, and Jim Peterson leads the Trust for Public Land. And welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Ryan. Jim, where do these billions of dollars for public lands come from in the first place? Well, you know, first, we're going to get $900 million a year for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, $9.5 billion to finally address a significant maintenance backlog at national parks and other public lands. I mean, this is simply breathtaking numbers. Of course, the natural question is, where does that money come from? Yeah, so the funds that go into the Land and Water Conservation Fund come from royalties or fees paid by oil and gas companies from offshore drilling. And those dollars that are taken from resource extraction will get to do something good by helping preserve and protect and expand our public land system. Now, critics say that this is a bit of greenwashing because, you know, you've got money from unsustainable resources, things that contribute to climate change, protecting places threatened by it. What do you think? Well, I think... Funding the Line of Water Conservation Fund fully has been a priority for 40 years. I and mean, we're talking nine presidential administrations. Where, where this hasn't happened. Oh, yeah, 23 Congresses. This has not happened. So we should pause and celebrate this. I mean, this is huge for the outdoors, right? So I, I think we have to take the big picture in mind that we are extracting these resources, and we should do some good with those dollars. And that's what this legislation does. Is it your hope that eventually that source of funding would disappear as the United States transitions away from non-renewables? Absolutely. I mean, we should accelerate the transition to renewable energy. Absolutely. And we'll have to be looking for other sources for funds to go into the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Could be leases for renewable energy, other sources. But this is a really important funding source right now. And we do need to be planning for the future. Absolutely. I know that Colorado will share this money with other states. 
But apparently we rank 23rd for the distribution of these land and water conservation dollars. Why is this state kind of far down on the priority list? Well, all of the programs that are funded through Land and Water Conservation Fund have different criteria. And some of them are threatened endangered species, for example. Okay. Or, or they could be any host of different criteria. And Colorado has ranked on a lot of things. We've gotten $281 million over the last 50 years. We will get more under the new legislation because there's at least double the amount of money. So just by the sheer number, we'll get more dollars. And what kinds of things do you think that'll pay for? Well, it'll pay for a lot more access to the outdoors. It'll pay for working lands, like working farms and ranches protection. It'll pay for a wide range of things. But I think what we need to do to make sure Colorado gets a greater share of those dollars is we need to surface more great projects. So what's a great project? Yeah. Great projects are ones that address access for more people, for sure. Ones that have really strong vocal community support. Ones that have strong congressional support. So we need our congressional delegation to get behind projects in their districts and statewide. And lastly, leverage, matching dollars. So a lot of these programs require that projects have matching dollars. From like state or local government? State or local government, okay. open space programs and what have you. Private I, money too. Private money as well. I gather that becomes a bit more difficult in a very severe downturn. When you say projects that improve access, I, I don't understand what that means. Well, you, you can acquire new lands. That can become public lands for okay. people to access. Uh, you can acquire access easements across private lands to access maybe landlocked public lands. And just making it easier for people to get outdoors. So one of the big programs in the Land and Water Conservation Fund is one that funds urban park projects. Right. This is not just things on top of 14ers. No, no. no. It's, <laughs> it's all over. It's from literally neighborhood parks to national parks. It is expensive, though, to maintain trails in the high country, especially with outdoor use exploding. And so let's go to Mount Columbia, where the Colorado 14ers Initiative is in its fifth year of a major reconstruction project. Ben Hannes, paint us a picture of where you are and what, what your day looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to. So from our work site up on Mount Columbia, which is currently just below 14,000 feet, our trail crew has a pretty spectacular view of the North Horn Fork Basin. Um, directly across is Mount Yale, and then to the west is Mount Harvard. You've got the collegiate peaks. You can guess why they're called that. And uh, Jim, I, I guess this is an example of a type of project that this money would help support these sorts of trail maintenance projects. Absolutely. About 70% of that $9.5 billion will go to National Park Service units in the balance to other federal public lands. So and, we would imagine Rocky Mountain National Park and Black Canyon of the Gunnison going into this. Yeah. This, and let's take Rocky Mountain National Park as an example. They have a maintenance need of about $106 million. $84 million of that's deferred maintenance. $25 million of that deferred maintenance is trails. So that's huh. uh, very important work. So Ben, what, what is your day like uh, up there? Yeah, with working as high as we are up, up just below the summit ridge on Columbia, um, our crew is up between three and four each morning um, in order to be able to get back down below tree line to safety before the thunderstorms and lightning that's often associated with those storms yep. rolls in. And so, you know, with Mount Columbia being one of our most technical projects to date, um, our crew is working on a very steep cross slope for anybody who's been up there in the past will recall how steep that slope is that ascends uh, to the ridge. And so, with this new trail that we're installing, um, it requires significant stabilization to make sure that the trail stays where we want it to. So our crew is up there moving 
four to 600 pound rocks um, across this uh, delicate terrain. So the crew today is working on a, a variety of staircases as well as retaining walls. And so what these large rocks moved into place are going to do is ensure that that soil um, stays in place and that the tread surface stays where we want it to. Put differently, they are hiking a 14er in a day and moving boulders when they get there. (laughs) That's correct. Okay. You have walked, Ben, hundreds of miles of trails. Can you paint us a picture of a specific place that's in dire need of repair in the high country? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So Mount Chavano, just south of here, actually, at the southern end of the Arkansas Valley, is a peak that we've seen through our sustainable trails data collection that is in dire needs of of help, especially above treeline. In a place like this, the trail gets above treeline, and actually, as you hike up to the the saddle below Mount Chavano, the Angel of Chavano actually is a snowfield that hangs out there until late spring sometimes, and it's in the shape of an angel. And uh, as you hike this trail, you're passing through a, a very sensitive ecosystem in terms of uh, many plants that are very fragile. Some of them, you know, while they don't look significant, it only might take five or ten steps to, to kill them, and they might be hundreds of years old. So as this trail works its way up through the alpine, as you ascend to the saddle, before you go up to Chavano, there's an area, a headwall, if you will, where the trail gets quite steep. And what we're seeing there, because of the way that fall line trails work in terms of how water moves down them and people move up them, um, they're very susceptible to losing soil. And in a lot of these places, you know, soil takes a thousand years for an inch to accumulate because it's wind deposited. So what we're trying to do is lock that in place. And right now in that little area, we've got places where it's uh, gutted, you know, feet deep, um, where we've lost feet of soil, cubic feet of soil. So that's one place where we'd love to uh, love to get a project up and um, do some work there. Yeah. And I think that uh, part of what you're saying there is that trails are also really psychological. You want to make sure that trails speak to the people using them so they stay on the trail and they don't walk on sensitive alpine vegetation. Uh, Chris Castilian, I'd like to bring you in from Great Outdoors Colorado. Can you help us understand how your organization, often called GOCO, how you come into play, especially as it relates to maybe some of the employment stuff? You know, Great Outdoors Colorado grants out lottery revenues uh, in Colorado, and this year we'll give out about $72 million, which is a significant amount of money in anyone's checkbook. But certainly when you're trying to apply it towards all of the needs that we have here in Colorado for outdoor recreation, uh, it's really a drop in the bucket. And in many ways, GOCO serves in the same function that uh, what we'll see from the Great Great American Outdoors Act as a grant-making organization. Okay, so, so this huge infusion of cash, you're going to help distribute that to these public lands? We can actually serve as a match for many of the entities that are eligible for LWCF dollars here in Colorado. Okay. So our biggest partner is Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and they get half of our revenues every year. So, you know, not a uh, chump change. It's 35 38 million bucks a year going over to, to CPW for their work. Um, the other half of our money goes out in competitive grants, which again is very similar to, to how the Great American Outdoors Act goes. So we'll grant out those dollars to local governments, which include cities, counties, and special districts, and then also to land conservation organizations like Jim's Trust for Public Land or other land conservation organizations around the state. Yeah, Jim said that basically Colorado would be better off if it could find outdoors projects that drew down matching dollars. So is it 
right to say that the lottery funds are going to help do that? Absolutely, 100%. And give me an an example of a project, uh, gosh, maybe in an urban area, since we focused so much on mountains, that you'd be excited to move forward with. You know, we've spent a lot of time over the last five years focusing on equity, and Jim mentioned this in terms of access. And, And as you alluded to, you know, everybody thinks of access to federal lands being up in the mountains to be able to get into those trails. But there are actually a lot of urban opportunities for us. And as Jim mentioned, uh, a lot of the land conservation fund dollars go towards urban park projects. And GOCO has spent uh, almost $30 million over the last five years really trying to focus on equity. And what that means uh, for us is working with underserved communities to be able to get largely their kids outside, but also their parents and everyone else so that we have the same opportunities here in the Denver metro area that someone you know, may want to have uh, heading into the high country. Yeah, I think there's an example of that, Jim, in the Denver neighborhood of Montbello, right? Just recently. Yeah, over in Montbello, that's a neighborhood out by the airport. And it is a community that hasn't been as well served by parks and, and open space dollars as it should. And a project called the Montbello Open Space Park got some early land and water conservation fund dollars for land acquisition. We bought a piece of property, about five and a half acres, and have worked with that local community to create this amazing open space park. It's kind of going to serve as a, a trailhead. It's straight down Peoria from the Rocky Mountain National Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. So it's a real neighborhood kind of entry point to other public land experiences. And, and really the key here is that green space, outdoor space, it has to be close if you really want to make sure that lots of people can get out and use it that it, it, it's possible to use if you don't have a car, for instance. Yeah, so our organization has a national vision that every person in the country would have a park within a 10-minute walk of home. And we know about 100 million people don't have that kind of access, including 28 million kids. About a million people here in Colorado don't oh. have close-to-home access. So funds through the Land and Water Conservation Fund and through GOCO and other sources are helping narrow that gap for all the physical and mental health benefits that come from that access to nature and the physical activity that people engage in in close-to-home parks. Okay, we heard at the beginning of this conversation about the Great American Outdoors Act. You're listening to Colorado Matters, by the way. I'm Ryan Warner. We heard uh, Jim Peterson say just what a, a landmark piece of legislation this is, how many decades it has been in the works. I guess I, I want a round-robin quick question from you, Ben, Chris, Jim. Did this happen because it's an election year and Cory Gardner is vulnerable? Jim? I would say that not much happens in Congress that doesn't have some politics behind it. So I I think the election absolutely accelerated the passage of this legislation. It doesn't diminish its impact or its importance for the long term. But I think politics had some play here. Okay, and I should say that it's a bipartisan effort. Uh, Senator Bennett also co-sponsoring. Chris, what's your quick take. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're not naive about the politics behind this, but as Jim said, this is a landmark piece of legislation. Some are comparing it, you know, back to the creation of the national park system. This is a major piece of legislation for all of us. And uh, the fact that, you know, we got it passed this year with Senator Gardner's help and obviously being signed into law uh, is going to be a a big deal for Colorado just because of the amount of uh, dollars that come back this direction. Ben, what do you think? What do you think? 
Well, um, while this isn't my area of expertise, I will say that uh, no matter how, how it gets pushed through and how it happens, um, we're grateful that it's happening and we're, we're ready to do the work when the money comes our way. I do want to note that lawmakers didn't agree on everything in this regard. Senator Bennett wanted to include the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act. You've perhaps heard a lot about this, the CORE Act, in this measure. But Senator Gardner disagreed. Among other things, CORE would have protected about 400,000 acres of public land in Colorado. Jim, what do you make of that moving forward? Well, I think that, yes, it would have been great if the CORE Act had been included. Um, But again, as we were just talking, I mean, this is probably the most significant public lands legislation enacted in the last 50 years. So we're going to, we need to celebrate that. We also do need to pass the CORE Act. And we are hopeful that Senator Gardner and the other members of the congressional delegation will work with Senator Bennett and Representative Goose to get it passed as soon as we can tremendous amount of community support for this legislation. So yeah, what's been fascinating to me with the CORE Act is that on a local level, it has bipartisan support. A lot of local Republicans who are on board, it has not done so congressionally. That's true. And it's, as you noted earlier, the, the Great American Outdoors Act passed by overwhelming bipartisan majority, 75% almost in both the House and the Senate. Conservation tends to be very bipartisan. We see that in local ballot measures all over the state. People like conservation, the outdoors, and protecting places close to home. And so there's, there's really no reason not to have conservation issues be bipartisan. And we hope that the CORE Act can continue to generate that sort of support, especially in the Congress. Well, Ben, why don't we wrap up with you, just because I'm stuck in a studio and I'm jealous that you're at Mount Columbia. Uh, how, how much longer will the trail project take there? Yeah, so we'll be wrapping up this season. Uh, the new trail is currently open. We're just finishing some of the, the major structures that we need on some of the big switchbacks, but the trail is open, and we will be finishing that project up this season. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate the perspective. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Jim Peterson leads the Trust for Public Land. Chris Castilian is with Great Outdoors Colorado. And Ben Hannes is with the Colorado 14ers Initiative. We talked about what's in store now that the Great American Outdoors Act is law. Still to come, Denver changes its approach to the geese that fill its parks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 517 Canada geese. That's how many birds Denver removed from its parks this summer to be slaughtered. Last year, it was more than three times that. And officials say next season, the culling won't be necessary. But animal rights activists insist that's not good enough. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Yeah, we got some geese, right? They're here. We're at a number that is manageable. Deputy Parks Manager Scott Gilmore stands on the bank of a lake in Denver's Washington Park. Looking out across the water, you can see it's alive with a diversity of animal life. You can see the egrets over on the lake and coots and, and the swallows and all the other stuff is a lot more rewarding 
than coming out and seeing a thousand geese. Gilmore says this scene, this picture of nature in the city, is possible because his department removed hundreds of resident geese. Resident meaning the birds don't migrate, staying year-round to eat up grass, outcompete other animals, and cover the turf with slimy green turds. Now, the city says it's doubling down on non-lethal goose control methods, which includes this lakeshore. We've actually planted a lot of more native wetland grasses and plants that are tall, you know, eight, nine feet tall. Gilmore says tall grasses aren't as appetizing as mowed Kentucky bluegrass, and it makes the geese uncomfortable. Because they can't see um, if a coyote or a fox or a raccoon is coming to get them. Besides landscaping, Denver plans to set up coyote cutouts in parks and spray more eggs with corn oil, which stops goslings from hatching. Add it all up and... I know we will not have to cull geese next year, no matter what. And that is our goal. To, that is a goal, not to cull geese. We need to manage incredibly hard to get to that point, though. That commitment comes as only a small relief to Dr. Carol Woodall. After reports of the first cullings last year, the associate professor joined an opposition group on Facebook. And I, along with so many other citizens, literally felt kicked in the gut by what was happening in the parks, and the membership just kept growing. Woodall has since helped turn that online activism into an official group, Canada Geese Protection Colorado. Over the last year, it's helped file lawsuits and packed public meetings to stop the Colings. That didn't work this year, but it did question big parts of Denver's goose plans. We have asked, what does sustainable mean? And if you say that sustainable happens to be no more than 20 geese, how have you come up with that determination? And the goals of Denver's approach are loose. Take this year's culling effort. Denver initially said it would kill 400 geese, but ended up killing more than 500 to create, quote, a sustainable population. When I asked what that means, the city acknowledged it's a subjective measure. Woodall says that's not specific enough. We need to stop and say, hey, wait a minute. We need to start envisioning parks in a different way, because if we do this, it's just going to end ultimately end up through single species management, which is equated to eradication. With more research, Woodall thinks the city could fine-tune non-lethal methods and even add some additional ones, enough to avoid killing the geese, not just next year, but ever again. And her group has some pretty big names behind that cause. As the partner of Governor Polis, I'm the first, first gentleman of Colorado. That's Marlon Reese, and as you just heard, he's married to Governor Polis. He's also an animal rights advocate and has pushed Denver to make a simple commitment. At the very least, release a statement that says that uh, culling will not be used in future years. I won't make that statement. Again, Deputy Parks Manager Scott Gilmore. I mean, it's a reality. Uh, part of wildlife management is that you have to manage wildlife. Gilmore says he knows that's not what activists want to hear, but his job is to control the geese for the good of the parks and their human visitors. And he's not going to take any options off the table. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. The U.S. dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75 years ago this week. The long-term health effects make it difficult to come up with an exact death toll. 
and with each passing year, the stories of survivors are lost. Which is why Alexander Stork of Denver jumped at the chance to record a woman who endured the attack on Hiroshima. And he's going to share this recording with Colorado Matters. Alexander, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. How did you get the chance to meet this woman, Sumiko Yoshida? I've known her grandson, John Wenstrand, since we were five, just before even starting kindergarten back in California. I met her a few times at family gatherings, and I knew she was Japanese, but never gave it much thought beyond that. When John asked me to help him record her account of the bombing, I was really touched that he would let me into such a private family story. He said he wanted to preserve it for his kids. But also, I'd like to share it on public radio wherever I can so that more people More Americans can hear the story of Hiroshima, the impact of the use of atomic weapons, and to learn from them. How old was Yoshida when Hiroshima was bombed August 6th, 1945? She was just nine. And I'll let her tell the rest of the story. Note that during the interview, she switched back and forth between English and Japanese, so I ended up using an interpreter. And note that some of her descriptions of the aftermath are quite graphic. I was happy, <laughs> very happy. So I was happy, very happy. We were a family of two sisters and three brothers, but we expected to be bombed. I was at the school and was cleaning my classroom. A B-25 bomber came once, and another five minutes later came back. I wanted to go see it. I had a pair of shoes I was about to put on to step outside, Suddenly, I saw a flash of what looked like lightning. After that, I don't know. I collapsed and the building fell down around me. I don't know how long I was unconscious, but somebody came and rescued me. When I emerged, everything was already burning. I never saw any of my classmates after that. None of us had a normal life after that moment. Outside of the rubble, I began looking for my brother and sister. But some lady said, run away, run. I ran towards my home and met my mother, who was coming to rescue me. She was holding my baby brother, who had been born in January. My other brother and sister had already run from the school and were okay. My mother was standing in an alley when the bomb went off. Half of her body got burnt. Her skin was peeling off of her arm and face. It was terrifying to see her like that. There must have been others burnt as well, but I don't remember any of their faces, only my mother. But she could still walk so we decided to run towards the mountains where we thought it would be safer. The only pain I felt was in my head from the skull collapsing on me, but I was so lucky to not sustain any other injuries. At that point, a black rain started to pour down. It began to put out some of the fires but it stained our clothes and made us worried that we would get radiation from it. Then we made it to the countryside. My mother had already left some clothes in a friend's house a few weeks before, so we could change. Everyone was extremely thirsty, 
but we couldn't drink any water from the river. The river was so dirty with ash and soot. People who drank from it got very sick. My sister ran away to the countryside with a neighbor. We couldn't find her for five days. We finally met her again in the countryside. My father was working at a tobacco company when the bomb went off. His work was farther away from the epicenter. He would bicycle to work. As he was bicycling home, he saw many people with burnt skin who jumped into the river because it was so hot. Many of them drowned. He took my baby brother to find a doctor. He had been held against my mother's chest, so his back got burnt by the radiation. He could not find one, and my baby brother died the next day. We left his body at the temple for a funeral, but a typhoon came and washed the temple away. So the only thing we had to remember him was his kimono. All I could remember was the smell of burning for days and days. He took us to the temple in the countryside where injured people would lie on straw mats. It was a very hot summer and we had no medical supplies. I remember seeing worms crawling all over people's wounds. The only place we could return to was my father's tobacco company. When we moved back, my grandmother told me not to look out the window. But I was so curious and I peeked. All I could see were dead people and dead horses. We had to start from scratch. We never got anybody act mean towards us, but we had lost everything. But my mom never complained. My grandmother was in the civilian wartime service. She died of radiation August 13th, one day before the war ended. My aunt was so beautiful, but she was a nurse in the center of Hiroshima. She died immediately in the initial blast. I was scared to be alone for many years after that. I used to sleep between my sister and brother and would be scared when they got up to go to the bathroom. Until 20 years ago, I had trouble sleeping as well. When I moved to America, I couldn't go outside during Halloween. All the masks frightened me. That is Sumiko Yoshida, who survived the bombing of Hiroshima 75 years ago this week, recorded by my guest Alexander Stork of Denver. Uh, Alex, is, is she angry? I wouldn't say so. I think she's really more focused on gratitude for surviving such a traumatic experience and being able to start a family of her own and the lessons she learned. Work hard. Be nice to everyone. I don't care how poor or rich. I will always treat them well. Because I'm so lucky to survive and be here, I can't be mean to anyone. In the 1950s, after the war, her extended family in Los Angeles offered to pay for her to come visit them. She met her husband there and eventually became a citizen of the country that bombed her. As for how she feels about nuclear weapons... 
I know they are much bigger now today. It's scary. If bombs are used, that's it. Humans are dead. How many more will have to die because of our big weapons? Well, thank you so much for sharing her story with us. You're very welcome. Alexander Sorica of Denver shared his recording of 84-year-old Hiroshima survivor Sumiko Yoshida. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If I asked you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south. I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't. We did. And it's good to be the OG. (laughs) The fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south. On the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As an emergency physician, Dr. Shannon Sovendahl sees just how fragile life is, including his own. And he thinks the pandemic is a chance for all of us to get acquainted with that fragility. His new memoir is called Fragile. It's about his unusual path to becoming a doctor and the sort of headspace you have to be in to constantly encounter people on what may be the worst day of their lives. And Dr. Sevendal, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. You are in the emergency department at Boulder Community Health. And there's a phrase, almost a mantra, in your life and in this book, this isn't my emergency. Tell us about the importance of that line for an ER doc. Yeah, I mean, I think that line comes very early on in your training. You know, if you're taking care of a patient, you're not totally sure what you're do what you're doing when you're learning. Uh, there be, there'll be an attending behind you, kind of whispering in your ear, telling you what your next move is. You know, to take care of this patient, and you're pretty amped up by it. And really, what they keep telling you is like, calm down. It's not your emergency. It's their emergency. You're breathing fine. Your heart's doing fine. Oh. It's their problem. And really, that kind of sticks with you throughout your career because no matter what kind of, uh, you know, horrific situations happening or chaos is happening in the ER, um, you know, you, you just stay calm. You're like, hey, this isn't my emergency. I'm just managing the problem. You are managing the emergency, but it isn't your emergency. That's an important psychological distance that you have to create. You, you open the book with a patient, a kid, whose emergency you could easily picture as your own because you, you could imagine your own child in his shoes. Um, you must have seen countless pediatric cases in your career. Why do you think this one that you wrote about in the book stands out? Yeah, you, you know, I think it's really interesting because you had asked me this question earlier, you know, off off air about why this case or why it was this kid in your book. And I think yeah. certain cases do stick with you and it's your headspace when you're taking care of them. And certainly I have two sons at the time of this case that were, you know, similar in age and it was very easy to to identify, you know, this child with my kids in the way that my kids look, especially when I go home. And then the other piece of it is you do see a lot of cases and I think you put a lot of them out of your mind just for self-preservation. You know, I was talking with a nurse about this the other day that she asked me if I remembered a case that we had together and I didn't, I really didn't remember it. And it was because I think you just see so much trauma that you do have to mitigate it. You, you, you can't take it all in. There's a scene from your memoir that stands out to me. It's a, about an aspect of your job I hadn't really considered. Let me have you read from page 186. The hardest part of a full trauma resuscitation isn't what you think. It's not the patient. 
It's controlling all these people. It becomes loud and sometimes unruly. They know they are supposed to be quiet, but when you put that many people together, with the added excitement of a full trauma arriving, things can escalate quickly. Small noises and quiet talking often build, like they do when you're in a restaurant with a large dinner party. The sound in the trauma bay ramps up, not because people are trying to be loud, but because of the number of people giddy with doing their job. Keeping a handle on the room is key. Maybe that stood out to me because I'm an audiophile and I think about the sound of things, but managing the volume level in an ER suite is not something I'd considered. Is that something you deal with every day? Yeah, I think it's it's difficult for all healthcare providers really in emergent situations. So EMS and fire departments, they have to deal with this as well. And I always use the mantra for them that there's three things that you have to be good at when you do this job. The first is clinical knowledge. The second is technical skill. And the third is situational control. And the situational control is what we're talking about here. It's keeping the team working in the direction that you want them going. And it, it is kind of the, the, the fog of war, the chaos that happens when things start to go crazy. You need to keep everybody on track, you know, focused in the right direction, doing what you want them to do. In the case of that young boy who is really emblazoned in your mind, his mother was also there. And, and there were occasions when it was possible to make eye contact with her. That has to add a whole different level. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I talk about that in, in that section of the book, you know, how difficult that is. You, you know, you feel that energy and that force from someone watching their, their child, you know, literally dying in front of them. And I'm in that space between them. And, and I, you don't really want to be there. You know, it's, it's, um, it took a long time for me to come to terms with that as well, because I felt, you know, like I wasn't uh, good at my job or that I wasn't, uh, you know, dealing with it appropriately because it affected me so, but that's just, that's, just, that's just natural to feel that way. The boy indeed died, and I understand that you visit his grave. What goes through your mind when you're there? Probably not what, what you think. It's, it's, uh, it gives me a little calm. It kind of is a uh, you know, reset button. It's outside. I sit down. I can listen to the birds chirping, see the clouds floating across the sky, hear my own breathing, and it's it's kind of like a Zen moment where you can kind of just zero in and hone back into to yourself and and your your soul. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Boulder Emergency Physician Dr. Shannon Sovendal. His new memoir is called Fragile: Beauty in Chaos, Grace in Tragedy, and the Hope that Lives in Between. As I said in the introduction, you believe the COVID-19 pandemic is an opportunity for the rest of us to confront some of the realities that frontline healthcare workers encounter every day. That is namely our own fragility. Why do you think that's something we should better understand about ourselves? Well, the first thing, when you read that that title, you know, what I was hoping to get across with the subtitles, this isn't a, a sad, depressing book. You know, this is actually a book of hope. And, and the reason for that is because as you experience trauma and these terrible things that occur in life, and they will recur in every person's life, like there is not, you can't avoid this. And coming to terms with the fact that this is part of the cycle of life, it really opens up everything. And it, it's what allows me to really be connected with my kids, with my wife, to truly feel love and, and all of these things that I cherish. I need to have the the feeling of being fragile to get that. And so you know, healthcare providers see that on a regular basis. And I come home and I'm, I'm thinking about this every day. And then we have the pandemic. And with the pandemic, it's not something that, you know, just two people in the U.S. can talk about, but it's 
across the entire world, people are experiencing this sense that what we felt five months ago is different today. And, you know, that pandemic is terrible, but really this just, again, proves that, you know, we are not in control of, of, of our lives here. We are on for the ride and the ride is going to go up and down and we need to experience all of that in order to, uh, you know, feel the full range of emotion. I know that suicide rates are really high among first responders, among emergency workers. Doesn't that have a lot to do with the struggle around being fragile? I mean, so much of your de- job demands that you be steely, not fragile. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, this is it's truly a, a huge problem for first responders and you know, healthcare workers that we do have these high rates of PTSD, anxiety, suicide. And that is because of this kind of constant bombardment with stress and and trauma. And we're seeing that on a regular basis. And, you know, I like to use the analogy that, um, you know, it can suck you in. It can suck you in like a black hole if you let these emotions get the the most of you and, and you can't get out, you can't escape. But if you can figure out how to just stay right on that event horizon and not get sucked into that depth, that is truly what opens everything up for me. That is what allows me to, again, fully enjoy the little moments with my children, watching them swing on a swing or the dog fetching a ball or my wife, you know, across the room at a cocktail party. Like those connections happen because of the the flip side, what happens in that that black hole. You did not start out wanting to be a doctor, although as a kid, you would operate on your stuffed animals. So maybe there maybe it was always there to (laughs) some extent. (laughs) (laughs) But you wanted to be a fighter pilot and you started at the Air Force Academy ended up leaving. Explain what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't, you know, my dream wasn't to be a fighter pilot like every little boy's dream, you know, after they saw Top Gun. I mean, I was really <laughs> determined to be a fighter pilot. And I, from a very early age, I was focused on that goal. All through high school, I was focused on that goal. Um, and I ended up going to the Air Force Academy. And, and while I was there, I lost my pilot qualification. At the time, um, you know, you could just, if you if you didn't have perfect vision, you could, they would say, you're not going to be a pilot, period. There's no corrective vision that you can have for this. And I was devastated in it. And I left um, just because I was devastated. And that really shaped my life because that feeling of quitting, of leaving something that I was, you know, was a goal, you know, just burned inside of me for the rest of my life. And to this day, I still fight with that uh, sense of quitting and the how ashamed I feel that I didn't stick it out and all of those things. And really, though, it's given me fuel to the fire to, to get through medicine, to, to have the career that I currently have and all the things that I've done is because I never want to have that sense again where I didn't follow through or I, or I quit. It's interesting how you frame that. It sounds like you're still really hard on yourself. You didn't really quit. It's that your ultimate goal was impossible given your vision. Right. And that's not the case anymore, by the way. They allow corrective eyewear. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, I am, I am hard on myself. And I think that the you know, what I try to do uh, in life is, is really be honest with myself. And, you know, you can make up a story that makes it sound good. But, you know, I was there. I, I experienced it. I wasn't forced to leave the Air Force Academy. I chose to leave there. You know, I could have stayed. I could have still been a doctor through the Air Force Academy. Um, but I ch- chose to leave because I was devastated and I couldn't mentally cope with the fact that I wasn't going to reach my goal. It was like, you know, like a three-year-old having a temper tantrum. I'm out of here. I'm not going to do this. And so, yeah, I'm hard on myself, but I think that that's uh, what I always call is the mirror tester and my pillow test. You know, when I go to bed at night, there's no one there to, to prove your story to. It's just you. It's just your own story in your head. And you better be able to close your eyes and go to sleep with that story, uh, you know, not try to candy coat it or, or make, 
you know, it sound better to you. What is the name of the test again? What did you call it? The uh, pillow, pillow test. The pillow test. Yeah. Uh, when you decided to go to medical school, even to prepare for the entrance exam, the MCAT, you had catching up to do. Uh, and I gather it's your experience dedicating time each day to a goal like that uh, that eventually informs something called the 300-second challenge. What is the 300-second challenge that you created? Yeah, so the 300-second challenge is 300 seconds represents five minutes. Okay. And every day, I believe that you should commit 300 seconds to your dream or your end goal. And the reason that 300 seconds is valuable or the five minutes is because it's absolutely doable. So we hear from Malcolm Gladwell and these other writers, they say, okay, 10,000 hours to be great. Yeah. Absolutely, you need to commit a huge amount of time to become great. But the problem is we're all human and we all get distracted by everyday things. I'm tired. I got sick. I have to go to the grocery store. All of these things interrupt our direction to be great. And so what the 300 challenge does and that 300 second rule does is it's a tool to get you back on track because every day I can commit that five minutes. And if I don't commit the five minutes, it's really because I lacked the fortitude and strength to do it. it there was no other excuse. So if I come home and it's midnight and I got to get up at four in the morning to go back to work, I can say, I'm tired, I'm gonna to go to bed, I'm not gonna do my five minutes. But really, there's no difference in your life if you went to bed at 12 or 12.05. You know, but if I do this every day and I focus on this five minutes, it keeps me on track towards that end goal and it keeps me focused to get where I wanna be. 300 seconds. Dr. Shannon Sovendahl is my guest. His new book is called Fragile. He's an emergency physician in Boulder. You mentioned the phone call we had as we were scheduling this interview. And uh, in that conversation off air, you brought up a scene from a 1993 movie called Malice. It's about a family's encounter with a really cocky surgeon named Jed, who's played by Alec Baldwin. Here's just an over-the-top scene during a legal deposition. When someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. <laughs> I just want to make it clear. I'm not at all equating you with him. Uh, but I raise that because faith is something you grapple with this, uh, grapple with in this book. I, do you think God is anywhere in an emergency room? That's an interesting question. You know, when we talked about this, the reason that I brought that movie up is you asked me if I had a God complex. And I said, absolutely <laughs> not. And and the reason I said that is because of the the, the lack of control that, that we have at times, meaning, you know, I can do everything right and the patient doesn't make it or I could do everything wrong and the patient survives at times. So, you know, it, it's it's not always on me. Obviously, I'm there to do my job and to do the best possible. But it's this clear representation that we're not in control. And when you say is is God, you know, in, in the emergency room, you know, I think that this sense of spirituality and in my book, you know, I'm angry at times. I'm like, why does this happen? Why does this kid die in front of me? You know, that mm. really ticks me off. Um, you know, how could God do that? And, and so the question is, 
more on trying to figure out what does this all mean? Is there is there something that's greater than us? Is there nothing besides what we see and feel in our current space? You know, those are all questions that I grapple with on a regular basis because of what I see and because I realize that life is fragile. Yeah, you write in the book that there are three basic type Uh, types of ER patients, those who live regardless of your intervention, those who will die regardless, uh, who will live regardless, who will die regardless, and those who will live or die depending on, you know, what kind of a job you do. I mean, I guess that's something you had to get acquainted with, that you had a lot of power, but you only had so much power, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it is, it is obviously a key moment when you have these patients, you know, we train our whole life to be that number, th- that third option, right? That how well I do my job is going to determine this patient's outcome. And so I think about that every day. When I go to work every day, you know, I, I do suit up and say, hey, I have to be on my game today because this matters. You know, my, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out there that we didn't talk about this in the pre-interview, but my daughter had open heart surgery. And when I was looking at the surgeon, you know, prior to the surgery, I was hoping that he had his game face on. You know, I was hoping that he didn't, have a tie one on the night before or go to a barbecue till late. You know, I was hoping that he was prepping for this. So um, I think that we always do that in our work. We get ready for the, the job that we have to do. Well, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, great to be here. Dr. Shannon Sovendal is an emergency physician at Boulder Community Health. His new memoir is Fragile, Beauty in Chaos, Grace in Tragedy, and the Hope that lives in between. He's also the host of a medical podcast called Match on a Fire. By the way, each chapter of his new book starts with a song title, a tune that was on his mind as he was writing. So we'll wrap the show with Good Life from Colorado's One Republic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) 